Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Greater Albuquerque Church of Christ, where we strive to discover and reflect the fullness of Christ together. We hope this sermon inspires and encourages you in your walk with Christ. And to learn more about our local church or to support us, please visit abqcoc.com. Get started. Who's excited for the first uh, NFL Sunday this weekend? Anybody? Let's go. And, and how about them Lobos last night? That was awesome. Great win for the Lobos. Uh, I'm personally super excited for football season. Um, I'm also excited to be back at our normal location. For those who joined us at, on campus the last couple weeks, grateful for you guys meeting us over there. Um, we're usually here almost every Sunday at 10 o'clock. So this will be our, our home for the foreseeable future. Um, and today we're going to talk about faith. This is kind of a one-off lesson in between two series. And we're going to talk about what authentic faith really is. But before that, um, does anyone here like to cook? Got any, got any chefs? Okay, nice, nice. Um, have, you, have you ever been cooking something and realized you're missing one of the most essential ingredients? That's a terrible feeling. Like, there's some ingredients where it's like, ah, whatever. Like, there's a lot of recipes that call for, like, Worcestershire sauce. And um, I never have that. Never, ever have that. And so, but there's all kinds of things you can use. You can throw ketchup in there, soy sauce. It all tastes the same. Um, but, but, hey, yes, it does. Um, but there are some things that are essential that you can't substitute. Like, have you ever tried to cook without salt? You're like, how do humans do this at one time without salt? Um, or we've been trying to eat more fish lately, you know, eat healthy. And I, I cannot eat fish without lemon. Like, I just can't even take it down. So if, if we're, trying to, we're starting to cook the fish, and I look in the drawer in the, fi- in the fridge, and there's no lemon, like, I can't eat it. It's essential for me. And in the same way, in our spiritual life, there, there's ingredients to our walk with God that are of lesser and of greater importance. There's some things that are helpful, and then there's some things that are essential. And one of those essential, irreplaceable ingredients is faith. I mean, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, it is impossible to please God without faith. Impossible. Jesus talks multiple times in the Gospels how belief and faith are essential for salvation and for following him and for experiencing the life he desires for us. And that's probably not a very controversial statement, right? Most, most people of faith are going to say, yeah, faith is essential. But, but here's where it gets sticky. What exactly is faith? What does real, authentic, biblical faith mean? And how much of it do we need? And what does it look like when it works itself out in our lives? And if you ask that question, you're going to get a lot of different answers. And I think some of us walk in with a cult- some cultural or religious baggage of what faith is um, that's not necessarily true or helpful. And so today we're going to look at a Bible story, a famous Bible story in the book of Daniel. You can open your Bible up to Daniel 3. We're going to read basically this whole chapter. Um, and this story is going to, going to give us a clear picture of what authentic faith really is and what it looks like lived out in our lives. And I pray that today we all walk out of here, not only with that clear picture, but inspired to have greater faith in God. Amen. Um, so a little bit of background to Daniel chapter three, because we're going Old Testament and this book was written, you know, thousands of years ago, the Israelites, they're in exile. And if you don't know what exile means, it means someone invaded their country, burned everything down and took them prisoner back to the, back to a foreign land. 
So not a good time. They're in Babylon. And this happened because of Israel's lack of faithfulness and loyalty to God. So instead of walking in trust and obedience to God, they just became like all the other nations out there and put their trust in money, in themselves, in other gods. And the result was injustice, oppression, selfishness, greed, all the junk we see in the world every day around this, that's happening in the midst of God's people. And God pleads with them and warns them and sends them prophets and finally is like, hey, I'm going to allow you to experience the consequences of your sin. And so they're taken into exile. And so in Babylon, there's this Babylonian king. Um, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. You can see that on the screen there. Um, I'm going to cut five minutes off this lesson by just calling him Nebi from here on out, okay? So King Nebi, he, he's, he's, he's the guy in power. Um, he's, he's, you know, got the most power and influence in, in, in that part of the world at this time. And what he does when he takes people into exile is he chooses a, f- a few of the most choice young men to serve in his high court. These are smart, bright, talented people. And so he chooses Daniel, who's, uh, you know, who's the self-entitled book of Daniel, and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you've grown up in church, you've probably seen this in your children's Bible. And I'm going to cut another five minutes off this sermon by calling those three guys just the boys, okay? So we got Nebi and the boys. And so... In chapter 2, verse 48, before we jump into chapter 3 here, what, what happens, it says this. It says, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the boys, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the high court. So through God, these four guys have risen up through the ranks. Yes, they're in exile. Yes, they're ter- it's terrible. But God has placed them in a very important spot, serving the king as officials and in his household, okay? So they're not just three random dudes. They, they play a very important role here. And uh, we're going to pick up in Daniel uh, chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to pray before we jump into this. So God, please open our eyes to your word. Help us to have a greater faith as a result of um, just diving into this story. Help us to be inspired by the faith of these men and women we read about and help us imitate that in our daily life. And if there are blockages to our faith, Lord, if we are lacking faith, if we have a, you know, a misrepresented view of you or what faith is, please correct that this morning uh, and, and let your word cut, mold, encourage us in the way it needs to. We love you. Speak through me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to read one through three. King Nebi made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So all these important people assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebi had set up, and they stood before it. Okay, let's pause here real quick. Those, those measurements, you probably don't just amat- automatically know what those mean. He set up a 90-foot gold statue. Wow. There's not many buildings in Albuquerque that are 90 feet tall. And it's unclear if, like, this image is his own image. Like, if he's calling people to worship him or one of his gods. But clear- clearly, King Nebi is trying to make a statement, okay? He's trying to show off his glory, And his power and his might, he's trying to bring everyone together and be like, look what I've done. Look at who I am. Look at how the gods have blessed me. 
And so he gets everybody important from all the regions he's taken over. Like this would take people days to travel to Babylon. And so my, my, my personal view on this is that the Bible is, is painting a picture here that's opposing King Nebuchadnezzar and God. Because Genesis tells us that God created us in his image and we are to worship and serve God. Well, now you have Nebuchadnezzar acting like he's God, making something in his own image that he's calling people to worship. Okay, so let's pick up in verse four and keep going. Then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebi has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all these instruments, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebi had set up. So everybody is commanded to bow down to this image. So no matter what nation or time period you live in, the powers at work, whether they be human powers or spiritual powers, are always going to try to get us to bow down to something or someone that is not God. So what about in 21st century America? What are some things we tend to bow down to? I mean, money's a clear one. The almighty dollar. The American dream that money will make you happy and solve all your problems. Or this idea in our culture of independence and individuality. Nobody can tell me what to do. I only serve me and care about me, and I'm the only one that can make me happy. We bow down to that ideology. Or all these other things in our culture, like this idea, current idea of tolerance or this false notion of acceptance or uh, our political parties right now. People can just bow down to whatever the party they follow says or ascribes to. Maybe we bow to the rich and famous. Those we, we idolize and we follow and we try to do what they do. We bow down to them. Capitalism, self, relationships. We would do anything for that boy or that girl or this thing. And, and if you're having a hard time seeing this, think of it this way. Whatever you, you, you put your money or time or attention to that can compete with God, that's what you're bowing down to. And it often comes with compromise for your faith and your character. And so just like everyone here is bowing down to King Nebi and his gold idol, it is really hard to go against the grain of culture and not bow down. But look at what the boys do. Pick up in verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They, send, they said to King Nebi, may the king live forever. I mean, you, you got some brown-nosing snitches here, okay? He's like, your majesty, you issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of all these instruments must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall, fall down in worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, the boys, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They, ne they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebi summoned the boys. So these men were brought before the king, and King Nebi said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? 
Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all the kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? How's Nebby feeling here? Hey, he's been disrespected. You ever been disrespected? Doesn't feel good. And he says he's furious with rage. His authority has been defied. And remember, the boys, they're, they're high-ranking officials, okay? And it seems like he likes them. The first, the first time, it was like, if anyone doesn't, they're just going to get thrown into the fire. And he's given them a second chance. Yeah. I get the impression, like, he kind of likes these guys, and he really doesn't want to do this. But he's got he's to take a stand, because they've defied the king. And he says this. Look at the very bottom of your screen, the very last verse we read. What God can rescue you from me? I mean, Nebi, he, he believed in the gods of his time. He worshipped some of them. I mean, he, he likely saw himself as partly divine. But, but here's the thing. He had a very small view of gods. No god that he knew could rescue someone from this blazing furnace. And so he uses fear to try to make them bow down. And so in his mind, it makes sense. It's logical that, hey, people are going to bow down to me and my idol because I am the most powerful being I know. Or at least he thought. And so here's the thing. We find ourselves bowing down to what we view as powerful and magnificent as well. So I, I mentioned some of those common idols of our day. What false gods are you bowing down to? It's going to reveal what you actually view as most powerful or worthy. And you might be sitting here thinking, no, I only bow down to Jesus. But again, where do you find your time, your money, your attention, and your heart going after? Maybe you show up at church every Sunday, but you spend way more time all week thinking about how to just make more money or how to have another side hustle or how when you get to this financial spot, you'll be happy or satisfied. Maybe you, you actually want to be a great disciple, but you can't say no to your boss and you work way more than you want to. You just get sucked into climbing the ladder or succumbing to pressure of staying later and doing more and signing up for another extracurricular so people will accept you. Or you have no boundaries in any relationships to keep God first because you just want to please these people. And that, that's bowing down. Or you want to follow Jesus, but you find that your version of Jesus is shaped by your political views. And I think at the heart of this is a lot of us, we don't want to be different. We don't want to be different than our neighbors or our coworkers or our friends. And so as a result, we are a normal, half-hearted Christian. We refuse to be radical with our heart or our faith or our finances or our priorities or have hard, honest conversations with people or really give our hearts to help people because we're afraid of being different. These are all examples of bowing down to false idols. What false idols are you bowing down to? Look at how the boys respond here. Verse 16 and 17. The boys replied to him, King Nebi, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Isn't that awesome? Who was the mightiest, most powerful, glorious being in the eyes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It wasn't Nebi. It was God. They knew they had a big and powerful God. And so for them, the only logical response is, why would we bow down to you? Why would we be afraid of your little fire when we know who our God is? And so church, how big is your God this morning? Is he big enough to help you through the marital issues you're going through? Is he big enough to save your wayward children? Is he strong enough to sustain you right now through your battle with depression or pain or cancer? Is he powerful enough to break the chains of the sin that you just keep getting stuck in, no matter how hard you try? Is he wise enough to help you through the big decisions that lie ahead of you? How big is your God? And for me, I I can tell how big my God is based off my prayer life. When I see how, how truly awesome God is, I pray bold prayers. I know God is able, so I pray for what he's able to do to save my family members, to heal my friends, to use me to impact people, to help me be the father I know I could be through him. But when I get busy and when I get disengaged, man, my prayers, it's just like, okay, God, help me through this day kind of prayers. And my God becomes real small. I mean, recently I've shared this from the stage before, but man, I've experienced some discouragement with family or friends and trying to help them know Jesus over the years. And so I can just stop praying for that altogether. And without thinking about it, I, I I can take a small view of God. Well, maybe God, you really aren't able to change their hearts. So I'm not even going to let my heart hope in that or pray for that anymore. And the real issue is I've lost sight of how big God is because the issue is right in front of me. And so we've got to remember, like the boys, we serve a God who is able. Amen. Amen. We serve a God who is able. Amen. Amen. Uh, We went hunting last weekend, uh, me and a couple of the, the guys in the church. And have you ever been outside at night where there's no light pollution and looked up at the stars? Man, it is awesome. Our God speaks those things into existence. Our God knows every one of them by name and holds them in the palm of his hand. That's how big your God is. Colossians 1 verse 15 through 17 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who's this text talking about? Jesus. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything. He has authority over it all. And so when Jesus walks the earth, what, is, what do you see him doing? He told storms to stop and they, and they just die. Silence. He tells demons to get out and they run. He just rubs some spit in the mud and puts it on people's eyes and cures blindness. 
He heals leprosy with a touch. He forgives sin with a word. And after he was beaten and hung on a cross to die, he raises from the dead. We serve a God who is able. Where do you need to believe that right now? Then write it down. If there's something on your heart or mind, take out your phone or pencil or write it down. My God is able to what? And if this connects with you, the issue is not just, okay, I got to have more faith. It's I've got to spend the time, craft out some, some space in my schedule to spend with my God so I can recapture that vision. I've got to go to a drive up to the crest to, to, to be reminded of how great God is. I got to go back through my prayer journals and remember the, the amazing things God has answered. We've got to take a step this week if we've lost faith to get a bigger view of our God. Amen? Amen. Our God is able. Let's keep moving. So I just read um, that first paragraph there, 16 and 17, but this is what they, this is what they continue to say. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. But even if he does not, that is authentic faith. Yes, faith is believing in what our amazing God is able to do. Yes, that's, that's faith. But true, authentic, biblical faith is also trusting in what God chooses to do. And that's challenging. It is hard enough to have faith that God can save our family members or our friends when we see how messy their lives are. It's even harder to continue to be faithful when it seems like God isn't answering that prayer. But even if he doesn't. It's hard enough to believe when you're in the midst of extreme trials, whether it's sin or disease or illness, that, that, that it's hard enough to believe God can save you from it. It's even harder to trust when he says not yet. I mean, personally, I mean, I've gone through now years of wrestling with these back issues and up and down chronic pain, I've gone through thousands of dollars hours and hours of physical therapy and massage therapy and an apropath and, you know, different procedures. And man, I, sometimes I just feel like, God, what are you doing? I mean, don't you know, God, that if you just healed this, I could, I could be a way better husband and father. I, I could serve you even more. I wouldn't be limited or frustrated all the time. But faith isn't just believing he can. It's trusting in what he chooses to do. So God, even if you don't, or even if the answer is not yet, I know it's for my good and for your glory and that you've got my best interest in mind. This goes back again to having an accurate view of God, knowing his character. Look at what Romans 8 says. This is Paul writing. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No one. I mean, look at the logic here. If God proved he was for us by sending Jesus, not even sparing his most valuable possession, his own son, how could we ever doubt his heart towards us? How, how can we look at the cross and see what, that Jesus was willing to be abandoned and spit on and degraded and beaten and flogged and crucified for every one of us when the Bible says, even when we were his enemies? How, how can we know that and then think, God, you're holding out on me? God has spared nothing for you. So no matter what happens, God has assured us through Jesus and through the cross that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that he will always, always work everything out for our good and for his glory if we trust him. So even if he doesn't, for the boys, even if he doesn't save us from this furnace, we ain't going to worship you. Even if he doesn't cure my back problems or your illness or, you know, save you from this circumstance right away, even if he doesn't, we're going to trust him. We're going to follow him. Even if he doesn't provide you with that spouse or give you that promotion or change that relationship, the question we got to answer is, will I trust him? Because even if he doesn't, it doesn't change who God is or what he's able to do or how he feels about you. And so authentic faith requires wrestling with this. And when we don't, when we don't remember God's heart and his character, what we end up doing is we fail to act on what we know God is able to do because of our fear of if he doesn't. So we might know what God's able to do, but we don't act on it because we're scared. We're scared of disappointment. We're scared of getting our hopes up. And man, this cycle can just kill our faith. And it can actually inhibit God from working. Like if you look at Jesus, it says at times that Jesus was not able to perform miracles in some places because of their lack of what? Faith. So our, our role is to believe in what God is able to do, to act on that, and then trust in what he chooses to do. That's exactly what the boys do here. They believe he's able to save them. They act on that faith. And they trust, all right, God, whatever you choose to do, we're still not going to worship him. That is authentic faith. So we're going to skip down to verse 22. King Nebi is not happy, okay? He's angry. He says, turn up the furnace, 10 times hotter. He ties up the boys and he throws them in. We're going to pick up in verse 22. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up the boys. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebi leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look. Sorry, guys, lost my spot here. The suspense. Verse 25. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of who? The Most High God. Come out. Come here. So the boys came out of the fire, and all the important people crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a single hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebi said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of the boys be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God saves them. An angel, some scholars argue it was Jesus in there with them. And and here's here's the thing I want us to walk away with. Not, Not just that God miraculously saves them, which is awesome. But what's the result of that? God is glorified in front of everybody. Nebi says, he calls them servants of the God most high. His eyes are opened. For the first time in his life, he sees who he is before the one true God. And he praises God. Praises that there is a God worthy of of all of our praise and worship. And this is what can happen with us when we have authentic faith. So when you act on what God is able to do, And when you trust him, no matter the outcome, God is glorified. Everybody around gets to then see and experience your incredible God. Like, for example, when when you have joy in the midst of incredible trials, like if God removes the trials, amen. He answered the prayer, all glory goes to him. Even if he doesn't, you're going to be transformed by your faith and you're wrestling with God and experience joy despite whatever you're going through, and God is still going to be glorified. You're going to shine his bright light of how is that even possible? It's not without God. And so here's, here's this beautiful space where we get to see God answer amazing prayers or our faith is transformed and refined and grows, and we still glorify God even if he doesn't. But who gets glory when we fall back in fear? Nobody. Yeah, maybe even Satan. We make our God puny to ourselves and the world around us when we fall back in fear. And nobody wants a small God. And so as we wrap up here today, here's the operating definition of authentic faith we've kind of built up. Authentic faith is believing and acting on what God is able to do. And then it's trusting in what he chooses to do. So what's your faith step going to be this morning? Maybe it's repenting from some of those false idols you bow down to. It's, it's going back and saying, hey, I need to reprioritize some things. Because, man, I, I am bowing down way too much in my life. And it's affecting my relationship with God. Maybe your takeaway is spending that extra time this week to recapture that big vision of God. So you can start believing in what he's able to do. If you need a faith lift in some areas of your life, man, that's the takeaway. But what is your plan? How are you going to do that? 
It's not enough to just walk out of here like, okay, I need greater faith. How are you going to capture a vision of God? And if you don't know how to do that, ask somebody around you. Hey, will you, will you sit down and help me? It's something we, we re- we're really good at helping each other do. Or maybe your takeaway is you got to engage your heart towards God's character. Maybe you're wrestling with, is God really for me? Maybe you've experienced some disappointment or some hurt and, and you've got to work through that before you can have this great faith. Man, how are you going to do that this week? Who are you going to pull in to help you? And then for all of us, how can we start acting on what we know God is able to do? We just finished a disciple maker series. Maybe this is a good litmus test for you. Have you been faithfully praying for the people God's put in your life? Like faithfully praying, believing that God can use you to impact those people. Have you been acting on what you know God is able to do in those relationships? Actually inviting people, actually asking them to study the Bible, actually engaging deeply with them. Or maybe it's at home with your kids or with your family. What does it look like to act on what you know God is able to do? Or in your workplace or in your classroom? Because when we, when we work through this process Our faith is going to grow and God is going to be glorified. Amen. Amen. I hope this is helpful. This is one of these stories that I always have to go back to to help my faith. And so I'm going to invite the song leaders up for one last song. And then I'm going to pray and uh, we'll finish up with one last song. Amen. So God, thank you so much for um, examples of true faith. I pray, God, that you would call us higher wherever we're at in our faith journey right now. I pray if we have a small view of you, you would open our eyes to see how great and amazing and powerful you are. Um, I pray.